about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Well, over the last four weeks, we have been uh, continuing a series uh, on Advent, and we've been looking at the book of Isaiah, and today we're continuing to do that, so you might like to keep your uh, finger in Isaiah chapter 61, which we'll come back to in a moment. Before we do, let me pray and ask that God would help us understand his word. Father God, we thank you and praise you for the great privilege we have of meeting in your name this morning, and we ask that as we come to your word, you would speak to our hearts and minds and help us be transformed by your love. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you will know the, uh, the famous comedian and musician called Tim Minchin. Uh, he's pretty clever in some of his lyrics, although I don't always feel comfortable about what he's actually saying or the way that he says it. Uh, he has a Christmas song. Uh, it's a song called White Wine in the Sun. I don't know whether you've heard it. Some sentiments in it are quite moving and quite heart-wrenching. Uh, But other sentiments make me squirm. Listen to these words. I get freaked out by churches. Some of the hymns they sing have nice chords, but the lyrics are dodgy. And yes, I have all the usual objections, this is the chorus, to the miseducation of children who are taught to externalise blame and to feel ashamed and to judge things as plain, right and wrong, but I quite like the songs. I feel like that sums up so many people I meet. There's something nice about church and about coming together and about singing songs, particularly at Christmas time, but there's also something quite dodgy about the church and about what it has to say, particularly about things of right and wrong. Uh, Only this week, this seems to have been uh, made plainer with the Royal Commission um, handing its report down and just showing just how abusive churches and people in churches have been. They've shone a light, a terrible light on what could be considered one of the greatest betrayals of Christianity. It's got a gut-wrenching read, and it's surely an example of a terrible, terrible betrayal. And it really does pose very, very significant questions for a church's moral authority for its ability to question and um, concern itself with issues of darkness and sin. And of course, people have abused this right over many years. Uh, They have been hypocrites. We've all been hypocrites at times, demanding certain things of other people when our own lives do not reflect what God has called us to be and to do. And so over time, since probably the 1800s actually, Other um, explanations have been offered um, as to why we have this darkness about us, why we commit sins, why we do damage to one another. And so frequently people point to um, unjust social conditions or the environment with which you grew up in and the way that that has contributed to your behaviour. And solutions such as justice and therapy and education are suggested. And of course, all these have insights and important insights uh, to us about why people may get involved in all kinds of different activities. 
And yet there are other voices now which are raising concerns about the dismissal of the Christian account of the human heart. Uh, Just yesterday in The Australian, John Carroll, the professor of sociology at La Trobe University, wrote this in speaking of Christmas. For us to give up on the Christian tragedy, imagining that we don't need it anymore, is charged with a cultural hazard. For the beach does shine, and yes, it is sublime, relaxing and even uplifting, but it has no gravity. His point, of course, is that it doesn't explain what is going on with our world. It may describe it, but it doesn't actually explain it. Andrew Delenko, who wrote the book The Death of Satan, also sees this as part of our Western society. He says, we have an inescapable problem in a society that wants to dismiss the Christian account of wrong and evil. Because once we dismiss it, we feel that something in our culture no longer gives us the vocabulary to express what it is we think or why we are in our position. Isaiah 61 speaks about this darkness. And if you think about Christmas, it is about darkness. Uh, Way back in Isaiah chapter 9, at the beginning of this book, we read these words. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land, a deep darkness, in deep darkness, a light has dawned. You notice the use of darkness there twice. Not just darkness, but a deep, deep darkness. And I think the Christian account of the human heart and our lives names this darkness. And actually, I don't want to dismiss it because I think it's actually helpful for us understanding not only our own hearts, but the culture and the times that we live in. The darkness is named and described, or this sinfulness is named and described in in Isaiah chapter 61 in a number of different ways. It speaks of those who are made poor, those who are broken-hearted, those who are captives, those who are prisoners, those who mourn, those who grieve, those who have a spirit of despair, those who long for places that have been devastated. It speaks of ruined cities, of shame, of disgrace, of robbery, of wrongdoing. The writer of Isaiah understands darkness. It's around him, and he understands what it does to our hearts. He knows what it does to us personally by talking about things like shame and disgrace. But he also knows about the way that it affects societies as he talks about cities being destroyed and societies being ripped apart. He knows about the immediate effects in terms of grief and mourning, but he also knows about the long-term effects of how it's difficult to restore someone from this position. It's a naming of the darkness. It's a naming that the darkness is there and is present. It's a recognition that it's real. Now, many of our carols, of course, do this. Joy to the world. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. Or holy night... Chains uh, shall break free, for the slave is our brother, 
and all oppression will cease. Many of our carols and readings at Christmas time actually recognize this darkness and they name it just as Isaiah 61 does. Why name the darkness? Well, to pretend otherwise is to fail to recognise the darkness of our own hearts. Naming darkness means that we are faced with realities that we are very uncomfortable with. The failure to name darkness, darkness and sin is dangerous. And in fact, I think the challenge we've had as churches and the failure of leaders is not so much the fact that they've spoken about sinfulness and called into question people's behaviour, although there are problems there, it's the failure to understand the depth of the human heart and its sinfulness. And so excuses were made. Power was abused. People were embraced who should have been charged. It's a failure of the recognition of the darkness of the human heart. And it needs to be named. And that's why the Royal Commission has been so helpful, because it is naming that darkness. It is making it clear. The kind of darkness and sinfulness that Tim Minchiner is referring to, I think, also inhabits our churches in a sense because it refers to a kind of moralism. And of course, moralism is a part of darkness. It's that ability to stand above and over other people as somehow you are better than them. To expect certain behaviours of other people without actually looking at your own heart and understanding the depth of your own darkness. One of the things I've learned as I mature as a Christian over many years now is that I become more aware of the darkness of my own heart, not less aware. More aware of how it infects all of us and the importance of naming those things so that we can see what they are. Of course, the other problem with diminishing the darkness or not naming it is that the light that comes that we will read about next is not there as in great our relief. Let me explain. We were just in Tasmania last week and one of the beautiful things on holidays and we stayed in a little, on a little property in the middle of Tasmania uh, just for a night. And I suddenly remembered there were stars. <laughs> Not used to seeing stars here in Newtown very often. And I ran outside and the night was pitch black. But the sky, oh wow, just how beautiful it was. Just how magnificent it was to see the beauty of the stars. You see, you need the darkness to see the light. And to understand the darkness in all its depth and its terrible nature and the way it grips our hearts, 
only puts the light in greater relief. And so that's where, the, um, where Isaiah takes us. As he speaks of this darkness throughout Isaiah, he also speaks of a great light that will enter into this world. And he describes this light as dawning here in Isaiah chapter 61 as a great reversal of fortunes, as a great reversal of all that is dark and sinful. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim, what is it? Good news to the poor. Bind up the brokenhearted. Release people, uh, give freedom for the captives. Release people from darkness. Proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Comfort all who mourn. Provide for those who grieve. Bestow beauty, a crown of beauty on those instead of ashes. Oil for joy, garment for praise. Rebuild ancient ruins. Restore places long devastated. Renew ruined cities. Strangers will shepherd your flocks, the promises. In other words, there's going to be a community of people coming together from all nations. And instead of shame, you will receive a double portion instead of disgrace. Isaiah points to this time where there is a great reversal, where the darkness is dealt with. And at the heart of this is this concept of the year of the Lord's favour. Uh, if you're familiar with your Old Testament, you'll know that that's a reference to something that takes place in Leviticus 25, the year of Jubilee. And the idea was that in the year of Jubilee, the gap between the haves and the have-nots was addressed. Those who'd been fallen into debt um, or sold land could have their land restored. They were basically... Uh, received their land and received their debts back every 50 years. It was God's way of making provision for his people so that people could be restored, could be back on their feet again. It was a time, this Lord's, this day of the Lord's favour, where the fortunes of people was reversed. What's so interesting is in that Luke 4 passage that we read today. Jesus preaches from this passage his very first sermon. And he says, I am the one who comes to proclaim. See there, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me, Jesus is speaking about himself, to preach good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Jesus is the anointed one. He is the one who comes to reverse all the fortune. He is the one that proclaims the year of the Lord's favour and enacts it in his life, death and resurrection. Jesus' commitment was to restore all things, to reverse things from where they had been. And that's what he does. Ultimately, in his death, the biggest adversary, the one we cannot defeat, the greatest darkness, he goes and he dies. And then 
He reverses everything. He comes back to life. And he gives life. Well, of course, there are many implications for us as we think about the naming of darkness and how deep it is and the proclaiming of the years of the Lord's favour. It means that we can see each other differently. Knowing that we have dark hearts. But knowing that we have someone who is proclaimed, who's Jesus, who wants to do something about it. And has done something about it in his death and resurrection. That does not lead to moralism, can I say. It's not possible to stand above other people and say how righteous you are when you know your own heart. When you know the depth of your own darkness and what Jesus had to do for you as he stood in your place and took your shame and took your despair and took your brokenness upon himself. Of course, that then leads into many, many other actions in the way that we live with one another and care for one another. It was just beautiful yesterday. I don't know whether you saw it, but um, under the fig tree just over here in our community garden, the community garden, the bike shed, and We Belong, our group for intellectually disabled adults, got together and there was a play and there was singing There was food shared. It was just a beautiful moment of reaching those people who are in great need. It was lovely to see Christians coming together and expressing what it means to be loved by God, to to reverse the order. This year... It's wonderful to be able to celebrate. We're close to $6,000 being given to TIA just in the last month. That includes various wells that we're buying for people overseas and various other gifts. If you want to see, do more, see Steve Ward. He's here today. You can buy some more stuff off him. Actually, I think we're $5 short, so if you can help him out, that would be great, of $6,000. we have also raised about 4500 for the Coxes who are in desperate need as well. It's wonderful to see the outflowing of what it means to understand what it is to be captured by this proclamation of the year of the Lord's favour. How it changes your heart. How it changes who you are. Jesus, the anointed one, has come to reverse all of our fortunes. It is the day of the Lord's favour. And yes, we still have time to go. We're still not there yet. It's still not complete. But we are in that time. But I hear you say, if the darkness is so deep and Jesus' proclamation is so real, how do we live now? How do we reclaim who it is that God has called us to be? How do we understand how to live given our own hearts and the way that we're led and what we do? How do we change? What do we do? Right at the end of Isaiah 61, there's this beautiful passage 
that describes what God does for us. Because the point is that our hearts are so dark, we cannot do it for ourselves. We actually need God's help. We need God's work in our own lives to change us and to transform us. And so that the end of Isaiah 61 brings us these beautiful words of someone who's understood and captured what this means. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. He understands fully what is taking place. He understands this God who understands the darkness and is reversing things. And it's captured his heart. He goes on to say, For he's clothed me with garments of salvation. He's rescued me from my position. He has rayed me with robe of righteousness. And then in verse 11 he says, For as the soil makes the plant come up, the garden causes the seed to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness a praise spring up before the nations. How? How can we go about reclaiming? By God's work in our own hearts. By him helping us grow causing us to grow, causing the seed to bear fruit. By him working in our hearts, by dressing us with the garments of salvation and with the robes of righteousness. And so this morning I want to say to you, at this time of Christmas where there are so many good things happening, we need to let the darkness in our own hearts be named. We need to understand the darkness of our own hearts. But as we understand the darkness of our own hearts, we can better hear the proclamation that this is the year of the Lord's favour and we can understand the beauty of what God has done in Jesus Christ in that proclamation. And the extent to which we understand what God has done for us is the extent to which we will be reclaimed by that beauty. That we will wear that garment of righteousness and salvation. That we will delight greatly in the Lord and rejoice in our God who has done so much. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.